Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org slash WOA. One of the biggest legislative accomplishments of the 2023 Missouri Legislative Session was extending enhanced Medicaid benefits to postpartum mothers. It got across the finish line thanks in part to a bipartisan coalition of lawmakers, including Republican Melanie Stinnett of Springfield. Stinnett joins the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about the impact of the Medicaid legislation and another bill she handled that could make it easier for people with disabilities to work. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equally. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. we got to find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't want to leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me as my co-host, she covers everything state government and state politics for St. Louis Public Radio. Sarah Kellogg. And joining us for the first time, she represents a piece of the beautiful Springfield metropolitan area. Our guest today is... Melanie Sinnott. Thank you so much for joining us. And since you are a first-time guest, you do have to be subjected to the first-time guest uh, questions. Most uh, notably, what are the boundaries of your district and where, where is it generally in the state of Missouri? Sure. So I represent District 133 in the heart of Greene County on the in the southwest portion of Springfield. So that's Kind of west of Campbell Avenue, east of West Bypass, and then uh, north of Republic Road and goes up just north of Chestnut Expressway. So it's it's a pretty broad demographic within the district, um, but uh, a place where my business has been and, and my home has been and, and a place that I really love. Before we talk about your 2022 race, which was fairly competitive, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you did before you jumped into the wacky world of Missouri state politics? Sure. So I have kind of a unique path toward politics. I think Um, I had never been involved in the political world prior to running for office with the exception of um, some advocacy work that I did. So I started my career as a speech pathologist in 2010, worked in just about every setting you can think of as, as a speech pathologist, and then opened a private business in 2014, providing speech therapy, mostly to children with disabilities. Um, And so I, you know, took that business from just me providing speech therapy a couple days a week to about 30 employees over the course of nine years, providing speech, occupational, physical, and music therapies. And so 
during the time that I, I ran my business, I found some issues uh, surrounding small business and healthcare and children with disabilities and, and started doing some advocacy work at the Capitol just realized I wasn't finding a lot of people with that knowledge base in the Capitol. And I felt like it was a really important piece that needed to be highlighted. So as I mentioned before, your race in 2022 was pretty competitive as you defeated your Democratic opponent by a little more than 400 votes. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to run in that first campaign and what it was like to run in a first campaign that was not a cakewalk by any objective measure. Sure. Yeah. You know, running in a redistricting year is unique for many reasons. Um, For me, you know, I signed up for what I thought was going to be more of like a 65-35 Republican split, probably would have had um, a pretty substantial primary opponent in that situation. But then with the map redraw, ended up with close to a 50-50 seat and did not have a primary, had a competitive general. And, you know, I just knew that I had to put the work in. So I I spent the time uh, going to all the different meetings throughout town, talking with voters, knocking doors. I knocked through my district twice and just talking to people and sharing with them who I was and how I wanted to uh, be a part of the story of Springfield and how we continue to highlight Springfield in our region to improve it over time. You know, Green County has tended to be a GOP stronghold historically, but Springfield in particular has become more politically competitive. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's now three Democrats out of Springfield. Why do you think it's become more evenly divided over time? You know, I, I don't know that I am um, knowledgeable enough politically to speak to that well, except to just say that I think, um, you know, obviously there were some shifts with how the map was redrawn and and made those seats more competitive just with the populations that were uh, included. Um, But ultimately, I think the important thing is that you know, on on both sides, you know, we have to be recruiting candidates that really care about our community. And and I think that's something that, you know, I strive to do and and really want to highlight. How does representing a relatively evenly divided district affect how you approach legislating? Does it mean that you may take different policy positions from your party because that's what your constituents want? You know, I, I was honest with my constituents whenever I ran and, you know, I knocked on doors and most things are are not a single issue thing. You know, most people, you know, agree with me on some things, maybe agree with, um, you know, my counterparts in Springfield on some other things. Um, but what they want is they want a legislator that will answer the phone, that will listen to them, that will, um, you know, just take that call and and listen and let them explain their their side. And so that's what I strive to do. I, I don't think it really changes what I want to do as a legislator because the issues that are things that I'm passionate about are tend to be issues that are, are bipartisan in nature mostly. So let's talk about some of those issues that did get a lot of bipartisan buy-in. The first is the fact that you were the handler of legislation that expanded a program that is known as Ticket to Work. Now, before I ask what your bill actually did, can you just explain to our listeners what the Ticket to Work program does? 
Absolutely. So for individuals who have a disability, the Ticket to Work program allows them to work up to a certain um, income level and still maintain their state-based health insurance. And for individuals with disabilities, this is really important because there are things that our state-based healthcare covers that may not be covered or may be exorbitantly expensive in private health insurance spaces like personal care assistance. So for some individuals with disabilities, they may need a personal care assistant to come into their home, help them get up out of bed, get showered, get ready and get to work. And then from that point forward, they can be more independent. But if they don't have that personal care assistant, then they're not getting up and going to work because there's not someone there to help them with that piece. So, you know, for that reason, the the Ticket to Work Health Assurance Program is an integral part of an individual with a disability's life and opportunity to participate in their community through employment. So talk about what your legislation ended up doing, because I've been covering the Missouri legislature since 2006, and I recall that this has been an issue pretty much my entire tenure of being a political reporter. Uh, so what did what, what what did your bill do that I think a lot of advocates thought was a long time coming, basically. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is a bill or some form of this bill has been filed for many years and has never really gotten um, significant traction. But what it does, uh, the original uh, language um, of you know, kind of the before that we're changing from included a gross income limit and then a net income limit that was pretty low. And so individuals with disabilities were having to choose, you know, not to take raises or um, not to take promotions in their jobs because they had to stay below this really low th income threshold. We removed the gross income limit and just instead went with a net income limit that is tied to the federal poverty level so that it can adjust over time on its own. And it's hopefully not something that we have to go back again and again legislatively to adjust. And we increased that to 250% of the federal poverty level. So for an individual, that's around $3,000 for a couple, a little over $4,000. Um, we also included some disregards that are really important, one of those being retirement accounts, so those assets don't count um, against that individual. And then the first $50,000 of a spouse's income. We had heard stories of individuals who were in relationships and either chose to not get married because they didn't want to lose this benefit that was so important for them or they were choosing to actually get divorced so that they could have access to this. And we certainly don't want to disincentivize marriage um, and, and the family system by you know, having legislation in, in, in place that, that limits that. So those are kind of the main pieces that we adjusted. And I'm really proud of the fact that we were able to get it done. So just as a clarity question, when you say 3000 to 4000 is that the amount of somebody can earn in a month or is that how much they can earn in a year or did I get the number completely wrong? That's how much they can earn in a month. Yeah, because I think before it was very, very low. Like it was like around a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars, if I'm not mistaken. And again, if I am mistaken, please correct me on this point. No, you're you're absolutely right. It was about a thousand dollars for an individual and around fourteen hundred for a couple. 
Why do you think this was the year this finally got done? You know, I think that having a champion who is really passionate in the legislature about an issue obviously makes a big difference. Someone who can stand up in committee and talk to something knowledgeably and, you know, go door to door talking to legislators and and getting people on board with the idea. Um, really, honestly, I think it was just a lot of that. I, I spent a lot of time championing this issue, this issue, both on the House side and the Senate side, um, and was able to actually get this House bill passed in the House unanimously, which then helped me to be able to um, get it in the right places on the Senate bills. Do you think that the fact that Missouri has a robust surplus of money made this idea more palatable? You know, honestly, the conversation of money didn't come up as much as I thought it would. Reality is, if we're allowing these people to work more, we're actually probably bringing more money into the state. And so while maybe that was a component of the thought process for some people, it wasn't something that I heard talked about a lot. Kind of in a similar vein, can you provide Missourians with some assurances that this program won't be cut again if the state enters less fruitful economic times? Well, you know, now it's it's in our state statute. It would have to uh, be changed you know, through the legislative process, we all know how difficult that can be. So I don't see it going backwards anytime soon. And then the legislation also requires state agencies to support Missourians who have disabilities. Can you talk about how the Missouri Employment First Act would work in practice? Yeah, absolutely. So the Employment First Act actually dovetails nicely with the governor's executive order from 2019, which sets Missouri up as a model employer for individuals with disabilities. And that takes a look at state agencies, making sure that they are trying their best to offer competitive integrated employment options for individuals with disabilities. And really, Honestly, in in simple terms, that just looks like making sure we're offering those options. I think it's really great. I was on a panel recently where a councilwoman from Kansas City talked about employment first language that was put in place in Kansas City. I'm talking with Springfield about implementing that type of language as well. So in reality, I think this is sort of a springboard opportunity. We're talking about doing these things at the state level and making sure state agencies are offering competitive integrated employment. But I see this as something that will trickle to our cities and then hopefully to private employers as well as they see the opportunity to increase the workforce numbers by including individuals with disabilities who have many skills and capabilities to contribute to our communities. I want to shift topics, uh, but also on bills that you've handled that have made it through both chambers. You were the house handler of legislation that expanded Medicaid coverage for postpartum mothers. This was widely seen as one of the more significant accomplishments of the 2023 session. Why do you think it was able to get across the finish line this year? You know, again, I think that the timing and the champions were right. I think that taking the time to really explain how this bill impacts our state and and women positively was um, sometimes a challenge because uh, of other factors. And so I think having the right people willing to stand up and stand strong on an issue really makes a big difference. And I was, again, really proud to be a part of the team that accomplished that. 
you know, I cover, I've covered this for St. Louis Public Radio, and I talked to one person who would have benefited from this policy had it been in effect when she was pregnant. Her name is Sharon Prather, and this is what she had to say about what she experienced by only having 60 days of Medicaid coverage postpartum. I didn't know that I had so many benefits until after my Medicaid had expired. They only give you, at that time, a limited window, and so it was hard. It was hard. I didn't have support. I didn't have family Um, And I feel like I really could have benefited if it was at least a year, you know. And so that was one of the biggest things. And then with my three-year-old, I had her at the beginning of the lockdown. And so at the time, no one can come to the hospital with me. I was kind of isolated for a long time. Um, And then my pregnancy and delivery didn't go as planned. Like, she was early, and I had a lot of medical problems. And I feel like with the Medicaid expansion, it would have eliminated a lot of medical debt that I ended up occurring. Um, especially with my my three-year-old. I had a lot of bills that were coming in, and there was no one, you know, I had to pay out of pocket for it. And I feel like, which is why I'm a big advocate for my families and myself, that at least a year would help. So that was, um, you know, Sean Prather's experience with this. And, you know, she only had 60 days. So what are your thoughts on the fact that, you know, an owl is 100 days and that kind of situation isn't going to be as common? Yeah, you know, I, I think that when we look at maternal mortality, we, we grade that for states based on a year postpartum. And if we're taking a look at a year postpartum and we're saying that Missouri is, is not doing a good job at, at taking care of those mothers because we have maternal mortality rates that are higher than we want to be seeing. And we look at those deaths and we say, you know, 75% of them are preventable deaths. And the thing that I sat on the House floor and that I stand by when I talk with people about the importance of this legislation is that the answer to helping these mothers really is one thing, and that's access to health care. So the logical choice in that situation is to extend that care and cover that whole time frame so that we're taking care of mothers for that whole postpartum time frame. Um, And another thing that I, I wanted to highlight, if if you'll allow, is I worked hard this year in budget to include some money for uh, doula services in Springfield. But one of the pieces that I added in the language for those doula services is that we want to have a feasibility study done to determine uh, the probability or the, the accessibility of a statewide doula program. And for people who don't know what doulas are, they are people who provide you know, physical, emotional, uh, informational support to individuals who are either before, during, or, or after childbirth. And when we look at expanding this program to a year and extending that, that time frame, what we also have to look at is is the care that we're providing currently sufficient? Is is it enough to just extend that? Or are there certain services that we know that have data to back them that would support mothers further? And I think what we'll find in this study and by expanding some of the doula services that we're covering with our state budget is that these doulas really do help, especially in situations where you have a single mother without support, where you have, you know, maybe substance use or uh, issues of poverty and, and things like this. So I'm excited to see where that conversation leads uh, as well in the new session, because I think those doula services are something that's often been overlooked. 
So this measure, as we kind of said earlier, had broad bipartisan support, but it didn't 100% kind of in the middle of session. And that was because of basically language that was inserted by the Senate that more or less would have said that someone who got an abortion could not have received postpartum Medicaid benefits. I kind of just want to, you know, why do you think there was so much controversy over this provision that ultimately did not go into the bill? Yeah, you know, I think the process that I've learned in my one year in session is that language is ever moving and ever changing until the very end. And so, you know, there were certain individuals that wanted specific language in, certain individuals that wanted specific language out, and that's just a part of the process. And so during that process, I stood firm on the issue of the fact that this has to get done. This is paramount for our state and for women who are giving birth in our state. And so ultimately, I think that, you know, that that firm stance of we, we have to do what we need to do to get this across the finish line was what catapulted it further. Yeah, I kind of have a follow up on that because it was added in the Senate and then the House did ultimately take it out. And I think there were just some concerns over federal compliance. Do you think just like the idea of just added complications were what made that unpopular in the House? Yeah, I think absolutely. When you're touching language that has to do with Medicaid, you have to be very careful as a healthcare professional myself and dealing with Medicare and Medicaid uh, back home in my everyday job. These are very touchy topics and you have to be careful what you do with that language. And I think there was some of that just concern of if we insert this language, what will that do? Do you think that the state will be able to sustain the cost of this program once the state surplus gets whittled down? I know this is a little kind of different just because of Medicaid qualifications, et cetera, but I want you to talk about that. Yeah. And again, I think that what we will see from this program is honestly potential healthcare savings, potential cost savings for other departments. You know, if we have mothers that are living and they are not you know, having these preventable deaths happen, then these are children that are not going into foster care, they're staying in their homes. And so I think we'll see potential cost savings. Of course, there there is a price tag with this one, but I, I don't see it going backwards. Some Democrats, and I mentioned this in my story, some Democrats, including House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid, have suggested that Republicans decided to make this a priority or get this through this year as a response to the backlash over abortion becoming illegal in the state. What do you say to that? Yeah, I don't really make decisions about my legislation based on other components. I look at the legislation for what it is and how it'll help everyday Missourians and and move forward from that lens. Another aspect of the bill that passed, there was a lot in this, uh, was creating what's known as transitional benefits that would gradually scale things back like TANF and SNAP as someone's income rises. But in order for that to happen, the legislature needs to actually appropriate money for that program. How confident are you that Republicans will do that next year? You know, I'm an ever optimist, so I, I, I feel pretty confident. I think it's an important piece. Again, um, we want to be able to allow individuals to have a hand up out of these types of programs. And, and I think this language does that. So I do think that um, a lot of people view this as an important step for our state. And so I'm confident that we'll we'll move forward with it. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Melanie Stinnett. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Melanie Stinnett. She is a Republican legislator from beautiful and scenic 
Greene County, Missouri. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, before we talk about 2024 legislative session, the, the 2023 legislative session is, is not really over um, because lawmakers are going to return. Is it less than a month, Sarah? It is pretty much exact, more or less one month. Around a month to come back for veto session. And typically during a time when Governor Parson has been in office, I don't want to say the veto sessions have been completely uneventful because we're going to refer to a kerfluffle that happened a couple years ago in this line of questioning. But it seems like this one may be more active than usual just because the governor vetoed so many things out of the budget that it seems like a bipartisan contingent of legislators are not happy about. So do you expect your cop? Do you expect your colleagues will pursue some overrides when you all return in September? You know, it's it's hard for me to speak to having not um, really been through this process before. And of course, every year is different. Even so, I think that there are enough legislators frustrated that there's that possibility. But, you know, if that becomes a reality, time will tell. The governor has said that some of the projects he vetoed were purely local projects that didn't necessarily need state money. Um, He had other reasons for some other specific things, but that did seem to be the general theme of a lot of his vetoes. What do you think of that line of argumentation? Well, I mean, ultimately, I don't necessarily disagree with that, that type of thought process and and thinking. Uh, I think there are, you know, things that the state should be spending money on and things that our local government should be spending money on. So it's not necessarily that I I disagree with that thinking. However, I, I look at some of the items that he vetoed, maybe that have to do with infrastructure or with public safety. And I, I have some concerns about those things. You know, the governor said he needs to protect the long-term fiscal health of the state, especially after the legislature passed a bill eliminating taxes on Social Security benefits and state pensions. Is that a reasonable concern? I do think it's a reasonable concern. I think as we take a look at things going forward, we can expect that we won't have these levels of surplus um, forever. And I, I think it's a reasonable thing to be mindful of our future. On the last episode of Politically Speaking, Republican State Senator Andrew Koenig suggested that if the Senate doesn't take up budgetary items that were championed by people who used to be members of the conservative caucus, uh, there could be a major kerfluffle. I didn't go line by line through all of them. We'll, we'll do that when we get to veto. Um, it did look like some of those might have been targeted in areas of conservative caucus members, um, which, uh, I mean, St. Charles got a lot of things vetoed. Um, I'm not, I don't put a lot of things in the budget because I'm not a big spender, but he did veto the one thing I put in the budget as well. Obviously, you're a member of the House and you, you cannot magically control what happens in the Senate. But it does seem like there is going to need to be coordination between the two chambers about what is actually going to be overridden. Do you think that if there's disagreement about about what you just mentioned, because some members of the Senate do not want to reward the quote unquote former conservative caucus, it could make things a lot more frustrating when you all come back in September? Sure. You know, I, I really don't 
know exactly what will happen, obviously. I think that our leadership and leadership in the Senate are certainly having conversations about those things. Uh, I think we just have to be mindful of you know, the current time, our future as a state with our budget, but then also, you know, looking at things that that need to be done for our state. So again, time will tell. We'll see uh, how the House responds and the Senate does as well. Moving on to next year's session, you know, it will concede with an election year. How do you think that those political dynamics will affect the legislature's ability to get things done? Well, again, you know, I'm I'm optimistic and and maybe a little bit more optimistic having had a first term that was successful with several pieces of legislation. I think that if you're willing to put in the work, have the conversations, build the relationships, then uh, if you're working on things that are really to the benefit of Missourians, that that things can be accomplished. I I do think there'll be other things, you know, that kind of go up in, in flames, if you will, uh, for various reasons. But but I remain optimistic and I'll be focused on on the legislation that that I choose to try and move forward. And, and I'll work hard for those things. One of the things that did not get to the finish line in 2024 was an effort to raise the threshold to pass amendments to the Missouri Constitution. And there we've talked about a lot on this show. There are many different proposals that kind of went up and down throughout the legislative session, but nothing ended up passing. More generally, do you think that issue will reemerge as a priority in 2024? Certainly, I think it'll come up. You know, there will be multiple proposals, I'm sure, as there was this past year. Um, For me, you know, I'm not going to be a blind supporter of any proposal um, until that language comes forward. I think we saw this year that language, you know, shifted and ideas changed quite a bit over the course of the session. So, but I do, I do think it will come up again. So this is the first show we've recorded since there was a vote in Ohio, which tried to raise the threshold from a simple majority to 60 percent. It failed miserably just as a similar proposal failed in Arkansas as well. Do you think the fact that similar ideas have not been successful in fairly Republican states may temper Republican leadership from trying to get something on the ballot before voters? Well, I think every piece of language that we put forward for something like this is different. And while that example is you know something to point to it's also one example what what did that language say versus what ours would say you know maybe the difference um what is the component that people are uh, looking at on the ballot and and how does that impact their day-to-day lives and, and and what they feel like their constitution should say and should represent I think that there's an opportunity to make sure that we have clarity. And and again, I, I think that you know, one example is just one example. Um, and although you can draw some lines between them, I don't think it's as clear uh, as just a straight line. On the last day of the legislative session, House Speaker Dean Plocker explicitly linked the bid to raise the constitutional amendment threshold with efforts to defeat a currently hypothetical measure to legalize abortion in Missouri. Do you think that the, do you agree with the speaker that the two issues are linked together? You know, 
for me personally, they aren't necessarily linked. Again, it's it's one one piece that may be put on the ballot. But when we're looking back at um, our constitution and the things that are included in it now, things like bingo and and marijuana and you know, kind of say what you will about how you feel about bingo or marijuana, but those things are now enshrined in our constitution. And if there are challenges and issues for, say, law enforcement and how they deal with that or our judiciary and how the language is represented there, issues for implementation with our state departments, then I think that presents a really big challenge for us as legislators, as a representative government. If our constituents come to us and say, I now have a problem with these pieces of things that are in the Constitution, we, we can't respond in the way that we need to to adjust that language. So to me, it's a, it's a bigger issue. It's not a one issue problem. And I think it's something that takes some careful, careful thought. With Governor Mike Parson entering his final year in office, could you see GOP lawmakers defy the Republican chief executive more since his time in the powerful post will be coming to an end? I know there has been some grumblings about kind of his bigger budgets over the last few years for example? You know, it's a possibility. I won't say that's not uh, a possibility, but it, it's just difficult, again, to draw that straight line, in my opinion. Let's move on to the last section, which is the 2024 election. There are now Republican primaries for every statewide office up for grabs, with the exception of the U.S. Senate, which I'm—so we're talking particularly about governor, attorney general, lieutenant governor— those type of offices. How do you think that the fact that there are competitive primaries in every one of these races now going to affect Republicans' efforts in the 2024 general election? Well, I think it's important to give individuals choice and allow them the opportunity to to make the best decision they, they think um, is there for positions like this. I mean, obviously, these roles within our state are very important. And so, you know, I would never say that, you know, I wish that we we didn't have those, um, but it could impact things uh, going forward in the general elections because these individuals will be spending resources and time and effort on, on these primaries and not necessarily focused toward that general. So, you know, to say there's not an impact probably wouldn't be true, um, but hopefully we can um, come out of that in a place that presents our, our strongest candidate. There, there were very competitive primaries in 2016. Some of them were incredibly nasty primaries, like the Josh Holly kurt Schaefer race was probably the ugliest primary I've ever seen anywhere. And obviously Republicans still won because Donald Trump won the state by almost 19 points. And in 2020, Donald Trump won by 15 points. There's no way a Democrat is going to win under those environments, even if they run the best campaign or the best candidates. We don't know who the presidential candidate is going to be for the Republicans. It may be Donald Trump, maybe somebody else. But how do you think enthusiasm for your party's presidential nominee in Missouri could impact those races that are further down the ballot? Well, we know that our, our presidential candidate will impact things at, to the level that it negatively impacts our races in the state. I don't think that it will be 
that significant. I think whoever is at the top of the ticket will will be, you know, the one who who kind of comes out the victor for Missouri. And so those things will still be true and hold true for our Republican colleagues here in the state. Well, Representative, thank you so much for joining us on Politically Speaking. And Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. You can read all of our stories at stlpr.org. And Representative, how could people find you on the internet where you want to be found? Sure, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at mstinnett, S-W-M-O, or Melanie Stinnett, S-W-M-O. Thank you very much, and until next time, so long. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East, we put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.